Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loved us and raise people up in his love. We are grateful to have you listening. Regardless of who you are, you are welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. so good to see you guys. Is it August now? Y'all, we started this in March. I believe the first time I preached to a camera was March 15th. And here we are in August. I got feelings about this, but we ain't gonna go into that. I hope you guys are having a really wonderful Sunday morning. Um, it's really good to see every single person here present. If you've noticed, we've switched it up a little bit. Um, not to address the elephant in the room, but yeah, wasn't it so wonderful? Praise was so wonderful. Uh, if you guys could just lift up a prayer for them as you hear God's word preached today. Because we can't clap for them. I know, obviously. Um, but yeah, uh, we are continuing through our sermon series on Acts. And... We will be reading today from Acts 14, verse 8. Last week we talked about um, what it means that God's people are together in spirit and truth and what that, what that means uh, for the body of Christ um, and the movement of the spirit. To be one in our differences. To... Follow God and not this world. Today, we're moving into um, Acts 14, verse 8. And the title of today's sermon, as you guys finish filtering to uh, the passage, is the title of the, the sermon is Mere Human. Mere Human. And the main idea is believing in God means debunking all the other gods in your life, even yourself, in opposition to the world. I'll repeat that one more time after we read God's holy and perfect word. This is God's word. We're not standing together as one body because we are not gathered corporately physically, but I pray that every single person as we hear the reading of God's word, that we would um, take it personally and that we would um, hold it with the reverence that it deserves. Acts 14, verse 8, I'm reading from the ESV. This is the word of the Lord. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men! Why are you doing these things? We also are men 
of life nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on that next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe. When he had preached, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra or Lystra into Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they have they had believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? God, we are so grateful to be gathered here this morning. To listen to you. To listen to what you have. Lord, this is a word that you have given me, that I myself am privy to and have a hard time listening to. But God, I pray that as we listen to your holy and perfect word, as we listen to what you have said in the book of Acts, God, that we would grow closer to you. Holy Spirit, that you would take us to the next level with you. Right now, God, in every single space, that every single person in this ministry occupies. Jesus, I pray that your spirit would wash over every single heart, that their hearts would burn within them as they hear the word of the Lord preaching. And God, I pray that you would hide me behind your cross. It is no use for me to preach out of my own self, but God, this is your worship, and you are the leader, and you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would be magnified, that it would be your word that is magnified, and God, that you would hide me behind your cross, that your people would only hear you, Jesus. Guide us in your light. Show us your way. Take us to the next level with you, God, and awaken us. Ignite us once again with a love for you that burns, with a thirst that goes deeper than anything we can pursue in this world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alright. I don't do this often, but if from wherever you guys are, if you guys can just take your hand in front of you and put it into a fist, just like this, you're gonna put it into a fist. Because we're going to hold on tight. Because the Lord came for all our lives today. And he is continuing to awaken every single person for the sake of the kingdom of God. So we are holding on to God and we are holding on tight. I pray for courage to receive God's word. And I pray for 
humility to receive God's word this morning. And I pray for alertness and awakeness. Don't let yourself dilly-dally. Not today. All right, so I'm just going to go straight into the passage. So the context of Acts 14 is that Paul and Barnabas have started their missionary journey. And they have entered into, they have left Antioch and entered into Iconium. And there's division in the people. I, I haven't read this, but this is from the first seven verses of chapter 14. There's division in the people about Paul and Barnabas. It says the Jews, quote, poisoned minds of people against Paul and Barnabas. And there were many people that were split and stuck about whether or not Paul and Barnabas were good influences to uh, the Roman province. Some citizens were like, whoa, this guy's kind of cool. Other citizens were like, no, this guy got to go. And so there has been, there was a lot of division and a lot of confusion about who is for Paul and Barnabas and who is not. And persecution was rampant and solidarity was dwindling. When the Jews and the Gentiles had riled up, riled up enough people in the city against Paul and Barnabas. They made plans to stone them, but when Paul and Barnabas heard about those plans in advance, they had fled to a place called Lystra, or Lystra, a place on the outskirts of that province. It was not as bustling as Antioch or Iconium, but it was still a prosperous Roman city. And here we find ourselves in verse 8. The first thing that we see in the passage is that there was a man who could not walk from birth. It says that he's lame. His legs is not able to move. Not that he's like lame, but like that he can't move his legs and that he did not have the ability to walk or move his legs from birth. This is something that the man has had all his life since before he can remember. And it is his entire reality. As Paul is preaching to the crowds, as Paul is speaking, he looks directly at the man. He looks, he stands around him, he looks directly at the guy, right into his eyeballs. And he looks into him and sees faith in the man's eyes. And this is not just like, an elusive faith to God. This is not some um, agnosticism, form of agnosticism, faith and agnosticism with a God that he can't name. But the man was seeing the work of God in the area and he was believing it for himself. A small flower of faith had bloomed amidst all the doubt, amidst all the confusion, amidst his suffering, amidst the fact that he cannot walk that he has to beg. A small flower of faith had bloomed. But the man didn't say anything. Paul looked at him and knew. And when he saw, it says in verse 9, Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your Feet. And he sprang up and began walking. 
Now, I want to pause for a moment. We're going to go everywhere today, but I want to pause for a moment at this. There's a man who is a beggar, a man who is at the low of the social strata in a place as prosperous as a city in Rome. A man who other people does not give the time of day. And all he does, he doesn't cry out to be heard. He doesn't yell for Paul. He just listens. He listens to Paul as Paul speaks to him. And Paul looks directly at him and sees that the man had faith to be what? Made well. Why? Why did the man have faith to be made well? It's not that the man had faith in a miracle. It's that the man had faith in the power and the might of God. But that means that God would have to have been bigger than his legs. Then the reality that he has seen all his life. I don't know if y'all know what it's like to be growing up with a chip on your shoulder. But this man, that is his own reality. His only reality. And Paul looks him straight in the eye in the middle of speaking. And then he says to the man, stand upright on your feet. I've given this analogy before, but I don't know if y'all have seen a horse be born. It's, you know, like, I used to grow up, like, really like reading, I really liked reading, like, horse books. That doesn't sound right. Fiction that had to do with horses, like Black Beauty, um, <laughs> horse books. Um, but, and, and it sounds so beautiful when you read it and you romanticize and you see, you see a horse, a baby horse and his or her mom, like in, when you when you visualize it and envision it, it might sound really pretty, but what, actually when a baby foal is born, it's quite disgusting. It's born in this giant placenta. It's like a giant sack. So it's born in a sack, and then the sack is broken, and then the baby foal, I don't know if y'all have seen Bambi before. Have y'all seen Bambi? I hope y'all have seen Bambi. If y'all have not seen Bambi, you guys gotta get educated later today. Um, but Bambi, there's this scene where Bambi is on an ice, he's, he's on, he's on ice. And he tries to walk and his knees knock together and he falls to the ground. And he tries again, but then his knees, his knees keep going inwards and he can't fully walk and he just kind of splats like he just kind of starfishes out on the, on the, on the pond, on the frozen pond. And that's kind of what a fool does. A fool kind of like tries to, tries to stand, but its knees knock together like crazy and then it keeps falling. And it takes a while for a baby fool to figure out how to stand on its own two feet. Obviously, because it was in a placenta inside the horse. Not to visualize it that way, but like, it was its, it's its first time walking and it has no idea how. Why do I mention this? I want you to visualize that for a second. When a horse is born for the first time, even though it is born with the ability to walk and run and gallop, when it tries to stand, it knocks its knees together and it falls to the ground. It is hard for an, even an animal that is born with the instincts and the reflexes to be able to do a particular thing. It is hard to do something for the first time. This man had spent all his life with his legs broken. He was not able to use it, let alone know how to use it. 
A lot of y'all, when I try to tell you guys about breathing with your diaphragm and singing with your diaphragm, y'all are like, how do I do that? Y'all, what ends up happening is, you know, everybody's just trying to use their diaphragm, but you end up using everything else but your diaphragm. And that's because you don't know how to use that muscle because you don't, you might not have fully developed what that using that muscle might feel like. It might be something that is foreign for you, even though the diaphragm is a semi-voluntary muscle. You might not know how to use it if you've never used it before. And this man did not ever get to use his legs, let alone know what it feels like to stand. Know what it feels like to use your instincts to stand. It is a motor reflex that is easy for us, but impossible for the man. And yet, when Paul says to him, stand upright on your feet, the man jumps up and walks. Y'all got to understand. Even when, you know, when, when this first hit me, and this ain't, this ain't got as much to do with the rest of the passage, but I want y'all to hear this. Even if God wants you to be healed of pain, even if God is rectifying and making right a relationship in your life, a broken family relationship, a broken friendship, a broken pivotal relationship, even if God is trying to make right your lifestyle, your spiritual well-being, even if God is moving in your life to bring breakthrough for your soul, to take you to the next level so you can be where he wants you to be, if you do not stand on your own feet, if you do not obey the will of God in faith, it takes faith, not just the breakthrough and the miracle of God, although God can do all things, because he does not force us to do anything. It takes your own stepping into faith to be able to get up on your own two feet and walk. The blind man, the, the, the lame beggar, could have been healed. But if he did not have the belief that God was going to help him, if he did not have the belief that God does what he says he does, that God fulfills his promises, he would have spent the rest of his life sitting on his own two feet with healthy legs. Sitting on, sitting on his butt, on the ground, with healthy legs. It took acting out, walking out in active faith, walking into what God is preparing for your life, for the, for the lame beggar to be able to be a full healthy man. And so the first thing we see here in this healing miracle, we see a God that recognizes us in our hearts, even if we don't say a word, even if we're the most abandoned, even if we're the most discarded, even if we're the lowest of the low, even if we've got nothing to our name, nothing good to show, doesn't say whether or not this man was a good character. Doesn't say whether or not this man was able to do a lot of things. Doesn't say whether this man was smart or witty. Doesn't say any of those things. Here we see two things. A God that recognizes us and loves us and sees us before we say a single word. And heals us before we ask of it. But church, if y'all don't get up, if you don't move, you won't be able to step into the healing that God has already declared and done over your life before you even prayed about it. 
It takes walking into faith. Faith without works is dead. That's not because works gives you righteousness, but it's that faith is not just something that happens here, but it is a living and active discipline and lifestyle. And even if God does everything for you, if you don't get up, you're going to be staying right there. But Jane, though, it is so hard. Jane, though, I don't know how, I don't know what it's like to trust people. I don't know what it's like to have a healthy relationship with my parents. I don't know what it's like to finally be in a relationship with somebody that is God glorifying. I don't know what it's like to forgive myself. I don't know what it's like to love myself. I don't know what it's like to stop performing and trusting that God has my worth in his hands, even if I don't believe, I don't know what it's like to do any of these things because I ain't never done it before. So I don't know what it's like. And I used to say this all the time because I have a really hard time trusting. And I I just grew up not being able to trust anybody because there was nobody in my life. No parent, no family member that I could rely on. So as a young girl, the, the muscle of trust was never built. And I would pray to God, God, I want to trust in you, but I don't know how. Let me, and I literally came here to tell you, it takes trusting that God will do what he said, even if you might not have seen it before. And nothing, that, that ain't got nothing to do with God. So will you hang on to your experiences or will you hang on to what God has for you? Will you get up? And move into what God is doing in your life. The healing that God is doing in your life. The restoration that God is doing in your life. The blessings and the fruit that God wants to have for you. Are you or are you going to be sitting on your butt in front of y'all, y'all's computers all day, every day, in complete spiritual, com, complete spiritual, I don't want to call it death. But maybe laziness. Because death and life is on God. It takes activity. Because God, even if he heals, even if he's in the works to move things in your life, to move it in place, if y'all aren't willing, he isn't going to force you. So the first thing we see here is a breakthrough that happens. Physically, yes, it is an amazing miracle that this man gets up and walks. But the first thing we see here is a breakthrough of a physical ailment that comes only after there was breakthrough on the inside. When God had recognized somebody, healed that person, and that person had walked in faith. That's faith in action that led to a miracle. A miracle that God had set up, but it took faith in action to get there. And so this happens. And all of a sudden, we zoom out a little bit. So that's what's going on in that man's heart. That's what's going on, what God is doing in that man. But then all, like... It takes a village, y'all. Y'all, we are always surrounded by a village. And this miracle happens to this man. It ain't a singular event to a single person because it happens in a public space where everybody bears witness. And that man 
jumps up and leaps and starts walking. But what happens? What happens when he leaps up and starts walking? All of Lystra gets up and says, God's in human form. And names Barnabas Zeus because Barnabas looked older and apparently more handsome. And Hermes foresaw because he was the main speaker. So this happens and that's crazy. But what's scarier is afterwards because everyone worships Paul and Barnabas instead. Why? Number one, they're not acknowledging that a miracle has happened. Clearly, this is a supernatural miracle. Clearly, this happens outside of whatever is within the laws of nature and science. It's supernatural. And they recognize it. But instead of receiving the teachings of Paul as this miracle happens, instead of receiving the truth and the life, the words of the good news, they reinterpret what they see based on their own understanding of who they believe God to be. And they fit Paul and Barnabas into that mold. I'm gonna say that one more time. Instead of taking God at his word through Paul's teaching, instead of receiving the truth in the life, they take what they see and they reinterpret it in the myth, into their own understanding in light of their own understanding of who they believe God to be. And they fit Paul and Barnabas in that mold. So when you first read this, you'll be like, oh, I'm never going to worship a God. I'm never going to worship Zeus. You know? That's Greek mythology. That's culture. That's not even a religion. False. If you normalize a religion in your culture, you got to also be careful of how much you've let that seep into your own life and your worldview. But they take him, they take them as Greek mythological heroes. And they fit Paul and Barnabas into that. But at its core, what it is, is that they're not taking God at his word. They're reinterpreting what happened here in their own understanding of what God should be. Because Paul is saying that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, but they're like, but I know God to be a God of lightning. I know God to be, I know, I know God to, I know heaven to be a place for all the gods to be. And I know, I, I, I believe that there's so many different gods. And I believe that God is supposed to do this and God is supposed to do that. God's supposed to look like this and God's supposed to look like that. And so they're seeing the miracle and God is introducing them to the gospel through this powerful vessel named Paul. And yet they are taking and reinterpreting God in their own mold. They're not submitting to the truth of the gospel, even if they see a miracle. Another way to say this is that they believe what they want to believe. And they cherry pick God. Oh, the miracle. 
But oh, Jesus, now you're Zeus. That's not because these people were particularly pagan. It's because they were not submitting and receiving that God is bigger than the best thing we could ever think of. Some examples of this. We see it all the time, and I'm not, I'm not here, I am not here to come for nobody's lives, myself. But we see in our own American Christianity, the way that we have enculturated this religion and marinated our belief in God in light of culture. There was a meme that was floating around, and I kept getting, I kept getting a notification of it. Because everybody was tagging each other on it every single day, but it kept getting bumped up to the top of my feed. And it was like, unpopular Christianity is, something about like popular Christianity is unbiblical. And then biblical Christianity is unpopular, or something like that. Um... Yes and no. Yes, that's right. But the fact that that meme exists means that biblical Christianity human beings ain't no better based off of these verses. It is easy for us to take God to take what God does and interpret it the way we want things to go, the way we want, the way that we already know God to be. Oh, but God, you're like this, so this must mean that. And the priority is our interpretation over the teaching of God. And the priority is what we want God to be, what we want God to look like. And we fit God's people into those molds accordingly. It's not as overt as Greek mythology, but we do this. It is so easy for Christians to do this. For popular Christianity, yes, there are times when it gets really prosperity and really unbiblical. You're not wrong about that. Definitely. I do not, I want to, not that nobody, not that nobody already not that everybody doesn't already know where I stand, but prosperity gospel is a lie because all of Acts is clearly talking about the mantle of following Jesus and the suffering that it might, and the high cost that it might be, but the greater cost that we've already received. So by that definition, believing in God, just so that we can be prosperous, so like the will of God is attaching to our will for the future is wrong. It's wrong. And popular Christianity often says, oh, there's a breakthrough coming for you from the other side. You might not be able to see what God has for you right now. But let me tell you, I came here to tell you that God is going to, and yes, it sounds so uplifting and hopeful, but there are times when it gets really prosperity oriented. Christians, we got to be vigilant about that. But on the other hand, we got to be vigilant. 
about the ways that we put our understanding, our biblical theology of God over God. I grew up in Reformed Christianity. I grew up in very, very conservative, very, very Reformed Presbyterian church. All my life, I'm still infant baptized there. Technically, my membership is still there, even though I'm a pastor now, so it don't work like that no more. But they, you know, I still technically am on that list of members in that church. And I can't, it is so easy for us as Christians, on the other hand, to take what we believe about God and lord it over God. God is not somebody to be contained in your knowledge. And you don't know him. The goal is not to understand God with your mind. Because even if you know him, you seek out knowing him all your life, you're only going to scratch the surface. That's supposed to be the beauty of theology. That's supposed to be the beauty. That's why my theology professor told me, if you think you know God, you're worshiping an idol. Because by nature, God is greater than your highest thought. So there's no way you can fully understand God. But a lot of the times, we'll take what we know about God and we'll lord it over other people and we'll lord it over our experiences. We'll try to make sense of everything instead of submitting under what God is saying for you, what God has said over your life right now. Receiving God and being in a relationship with Him might also take the humility for some of us to admit that we can't know God. And that that's not the goal. Knowledge is not the goal. God is the goal. But here, we see this overt way that the Romans, the Iconians, take what Paul is saying and fit it into their circles and their squares, their molds of what they believe God to be. But y'all gotta know, we do this too. What are the ways that you have been putting God in a box? I want y'all to think about some non-negotiables that you have about God right now. God doesn't move in this way whatsoever. God doesn't act like this whatsoever. Yes, it might open some a Pandora's box of wrestling with good and evil, wrestling why there is suffering in the world, wrestling with your understanding of God. But it's okay to wrestle with God because he loves you. So what are the ways that you have been putting God in a box? And lording your knowledge of God over what God is doing in your life and over other people's lives. Now, Paul and Barnabas obviously doesn't respond well. They tear their clothes and they preach to them about the living God. They say, why are you doing this? And they preach to them about the living God. But the Lystrians can't change their mind. 
Paul and Barnabas says, look at God. What you're doing right now, what you're believing in right now is worthless. Remember the person that has provided you with everything that you have. Let's think back to the fact that God gave a miracle to that beggar before the beggar said a word. Our God is provider, Jehovah Jireh. He is a provider. Remember him. Remember the person that has given you everything, but the people didn't listen. And it took Paul every ounce of strength that they had to stop people from offering sacrifices to them. We see here it is so easy for us to worship people. It is so easy for us to worship people. It is so easy for us, even in church, to worship pastors. It is so easy to worship people and put people on a pedestal that they ain't supposed to be on. What is the hype about superheroes? Is that? It's a matter of worship. Worshiping somebody that is stronger than you. That can manipulate the elements of reality better than you. Why else would the term superhero exist? Think about it. Superhero. Even though it's fictitious. It speaks to the human condition of needing to worship something. And often worshiping humans. Even ourselves. Jane, I know that God is taking me down this. I know what God wants from me right now. But I just want to do what I want to do. That is worship. It shows a priority of kingship in your heart. And the world, this world, even if you do you empowering other women, empowering other people groups, empowering other cultures, even in this world with those kind of uplifting, hopeful messages, often the undergirding element is self-worship. The church of Satan, the church of Satan, one of the critical elements of the church of Satan, especially in reaction to the ways that the church has hurt those individual members, is me. The sense of self. Even when you feel like you ain't worshiping nothing, you're worshiping something. You're worshiping something. But Jane, like, how did Paul and Barnabas refuse being treated well? Like, Ultimately, when it, what it looks like in practice, they're bringing garlands for them and they're bringing food for them. It might not even seem like worship, huh? How come Paul and Barnabas are able to refuse that so long? Why didn't they just receive the fact, I mean, they are missionaries. Why couldn't they just receive it? It comes along with the cognitive understanding that they are not the ones with the power to perform what God can even when a wondrous thing happens in a person's life, even when we move forward in our purpose, into our breakthrough, even when God takes us in a season of blessing, even when God takes us and uses us and 
magnifies his name through an elevation of our status. That is not by our strength. We do not have the want. We are not with the power to perform what God can do. God is the one who is wondrous, not us. And we gotta fear God more than we fear men. It takes an understanding of who God is. Not in the sense of, oh, I know God can do this and this and this, but it's like God is more powerful. God is more great than anything in this world. And it takes that understanding of who God might be, the depth and the breadth of what God might be, to have that cognitive understanding to give God glory, to give credit where it's due. Mona Lisa would just be a nice painting if people didn't recognize Da Vinci. It takes understanding the extent of what God might be. It takes that to have that cognitive understanding of the fact that we are limited and God is not. God is unlimited. And we are limited. So for Paul and Barnabas, people who have been saved by an amazing, irresistible, unchanging, powerful love of God displayed on a cross, they can't possibly take glory for what they did not do. For God has regarded our hopeless state. Believing in God means debunking all over all other gods, including myself. But that's not just what it means. Believing in God doesn't just mean debunking all other gods, but it also means opposition to the world. Verse 19, a mere verse after all of this happens, Jews from Antioch wins over the, literally, literally a verse later, while they are still getting over the miracle, while they're still trying to give the last of the sacrifices that they have prepared. Jews from Antioch come in, they win over the crowds, and the crowd stones Paul. Paul gets beaten up, goes unconscious, and they drag him outside. Now, what do they win over the crowds about? In the midst of the crowds getting really excited, the Jews from Antioch are saying that Paul is flipping the world upside down. They're acting contrary to the degrees of the emperor and proclaiming another king. So it's like, oh yeah, that guy actually isn't a god. He's right, he's not a god. You know what he actually is? He's flipping the world upside down. He's saying that there's another king, but we have an emperor. And the Jews incite the crowd. And what happens in this result of stoning is actually mob violence. What actually happens here is is a form of, of mob violence where the enthusiasm about the miracle has morphed into excitement to stone, publicly stone somebody. But Paul lives. Paul lives past this day. After these human beings have completely switched on him in a split second. And stone him after trying to worship him. 
Paul lives. He gets up. The next day he moves on. I want to point something out. Interestingly, there is no mention of a miracle. There could have been, but there is no mention of a miracle. Jane, though, but Paul is performing miracles on other people. Why can't a miracle happen to him? See, because the point is not, the point of healing is not self-preservation. It's the presence of God. It's the furthering of the kingdom of God. And he continues. He continues to spread the gospel to the church with Barnabas, with the words, we must endure many hardships. Specifically in the ESV, I like the ESV language better. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through much opposition, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you think about what happened to Paul right after everybody swarms in to try to worship him, it's really hurtful and unfair, not just on a physical level, but on a, on a emotional level. Almost feels like a backstabbing. Or when somebody's unfairly accused. I don't know if you guys can think of a moment in your life where your friends or people turned on you, where you were unfairly accused of something, especially for being Christian, where misunderstandings of you arose, even as all you were doing was maybe you were trying to be a leader, but then people started talking. Whatever it may be. We all go through our moments. We might relate to the unfortunate way that the events unfold for Paul here. And after that, God doesn't heal. It's not a matter, I mean, God did heal him, ultimately. But there was no miracle. Jane, why was there no miracle? Paul was beaten in opposition to the world. If God can heal a lame beggar who is sitting, why can't God do that for Paul? God, how can Paul just went through something that is so unfair? Why would you not vindicate him in the presence of everybody by healing him radically? Then everybody would know that he is yours. They would not lay a finger on him. To that, I want to challenge you. What is the greater miracle? The healing of Paul's body or the presence of Christ with Paul? Sure, Paul might have gone through a lot of things that day in ministry. 
It's a rough day. It's a rough day for Paul. But what is the greater miracle? The miracle of healing that Paul performed? Or the presence of God with Paul? Paul and Barnabas continue and then and they come back even to Iconium, to the place where Paul was stung, and they uplift the disciples and set up leaders in place. Paul accepts the cost of following Jesus, and he moves not in, even in fear, because it's traumatic to be stoned, not even in fear of what he, he's experienced, but he moves. Why? Why does he move like that? Why does he move like that? Because the presence of God is the greatest miracle. You might find that when you go through things, when you go through opposition, when you go through strife, you say, God, please, do you hear me, God? I have often found that his reaction to my suffering is always his presence. I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. I've often wondered if it just took a physical miracle for God to show his presence and that the greatest miracle is that God is with us. Now, how do we apply the fact that believing in God means debunking all other gods, including yourself, and that believing in God means opposition to the world in exchange, opposition to the world in exchange for his presence? The first thing, just to echo some points, God is a healing God, and he might command you to do something you've never done before. He might be bringing something into your life that you might have never seen done before. He might be moving in your way to restore you and your family in ways that you have never seen happen before. But the power of God is one thing. And the obedience to walk into the promise that God has already prepared for you is another. What are you stopping? What what are you afraid of? What what promise do you not believe in the most out of everything that God has promised? What is hardest for you to believe and step into right now? That He has a plan for you? That He is with you? That He's actually in control? That He actually has the power? That he actually is real? What is the thing that you have a hard time stepping into? God healed that beggar before that beggar said a word. God knows your heart, what you are struggling with, what you are wrestling with, what you are saying, what are you, what you are doing in your sin. 
and also the ways that He has made you fearfully and wonderfully. And He accepts all of you for who you are. He sees you right now. Church, know for yourselves that there is not a single aspect of your life that God does not see. And He is already moving in your life. Even before you know what to ask for, God is on the move. But are you willing to let go of control? Are you willing to live not on a worldly priority scale, but on a scale that follows God? Oh, if you don't hear this, if you don't hear this, are you willing to face God as ruler of your life and step into what he has for you? What that might look like is just looking at him, reprioritizing your life to not be centered around money or around people, but around God. God is not your back burner. He is your king. He is your creator. And right now, he is moving in your life. But it takes you being willing to stay. Second, just because you feel good and because people treat you well, just because you are comfortable in a relationship or you are comfortable in your toxicity or you are comfortable with the way that you're living right now or you are comfortable with the habits that you have developed in quarantine, the spiritual idleness that has taken over you, just because you feel good in the moment when you do certain things, just because even virtue makes you feel good, even being a good person makes you feel good, does not mean it is godly. And the root of that is who is on the throne. Is God on the throne? His rightful place in your heart, or are you on the throne right now? Even if it's a good thing, are you doing it because you want it? And it's not that God doesn't care about what you want. He does. But you're not God. The reality is, whether or not you live that way, whether or not you live, and this is something, this is something we all gotta hear. Just because you ignore God and you make your own decisions for your life doesn't mean that the reality still stands. Doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that that reality, that God is real and that God is God goes away. The reality still stands that God is Lord over your life. Whether or not you're flailing around in your own pool, of whatever you're thinking, whatever you will for, or not, doesn't change who God is. And just because you're doing things that make you feel good, just because you're comfortable in where you are, doesn't mean that that's good for your spirit. Check your heart. Church, check your heart. Is God on the throne? I check, I have to check that every day for my own self. It's so easy to make it about me. But church, who is on the throne of your heart?
God is the greater miracle. It's the last point. God is the greatest miracle. What do you believe in? The power of people or the power of the presence of God? Physical miracles, physical breakthroughs, visible healing, visible change and transformation. That is only a result of the greater miracle of the presence of God. Don't idolize even the miracle or even the provision of God or even the breakthrough of God. Don't idolize what God can give you over his presence. The greater miracle is the presence of God. Don't idolize people over the presence of God. The power of the presence of God is the greatest miracle. And more than that, the fact that the presence of God is with you right now is the greatest miracle of all. I want to take some time to pray. Where is your heart right now? From wherever you are listening, we hope you are blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com.